Good morning, everybody. I turn to James chapter 1. And we'll be reading verse 13 through 15. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no man say when he's tempted that I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. I know it seems as if we're not moving too fast here, but it's important for us to understand in this verse 13 that the temptations that are talked about here are not the temptations that are talked about in the first 12 verses. Verse 13 starts to explain what many might misunderstand about the concept of this sin the concept of these temptations. The temptations that he's about to address, as I've said, aren't the same temptations that he addressed in the first 12 verses. Those temptations that we've talked about before are temptations and trials sent by a loving Father at the hand of the Lord. And they're designed to bring us joy and peace in Christ. But James is making a distinction here in the temptations that he's addressing in these verses. He teaches about, in verse 13, uh, those that he teaches about in verse 13 are from another source altogether. The temptations found there are those that proceed from the darkness of our own hearts, not from God. It's talking about our lusts, our sin, our vile nature. The word that's used there, temptation, temptations and all that, is is basically the same word, but the source of those temptations and the end result are totally opposite from what we've been talking about. If the source of the temptation is from God, it's by grace and it's designed to prove our faith. If the temptation comes from within ourselves, then it has its origin in our sin and ourselves. James is setting things in their proper order here so that no one especially the believer. Now get this. No one, especially the believer, can blame any outside source for the evil that's in our own heart. It's, it's our sin. It's our lust. If we're tempted to sin, the source of it, the source of the temptation, is our own sin, our own lust. God doesn't and He won't 
God does not and He will not. And He's never tempted man to sin and can't be charged with your sin because for Him to do evil, get this, in the sense of holding before you something that would hurt and destroy you is completely inconsistent with His holy nature. He just don't do it. He's incapable of doing it. Let's ask ourselves this question then. Why would James even address this subject? It's because that we have a problem with blaming our sin on something else or someone else outside of ourselves. We can justify anything we do or say using what's termed situation ethics. It just depends on the situation. It's what excuse you come up with. How you justify yourself. And sadly for the believer, the target of our blame is often our God. And that's proven by the words that we see here in our our text. Let no man say, when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. Well, if that hadn't been a problem, why would he not address it? Why Why would he address it? Scripture contains numerous examples. I won't give maybe one to name one. Remember when Aaron made an idol of that golden calf when they were in the wilderness. When he was confronted with his actions by Moses, he answered this way. We laugh at his answer, but it's just as much a part of our nature as it was his. They, Aaron is speaking of the people, They said to me, Aaron, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't even know where he is or what's become of him. And he was on the mountain face to face with God. And Aaron said, and I told him, Moses, whoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and then I cast it into the fire and there came out this calf. Magic. Don't blame me. Blame the flame. There's something hereditary in this. Our father Adam told God, the woman you gave me tempted me. That was the beginning of it all. In fact, he laid the blame upon God for giving him his temptress. It's a thing contained in the very root of our nature. It's bad to sin, but it's a whole lot worse to charge God with it and to say it was because of him. Those that lay the blame of their sin, either upon their construction, their, their makeup, their, <clears throat> their form, their situation, as if, it were, as if he were the author of sin, uh, 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 or on a fatalistic necessity 
of sinning reproach God in their in their answers and their excuses and their their situation justification as if he were the author of it. The afflictions that are sent by God are designed to draw out our graces as we've seen in the previous 12 verses and not our corruptions in spite of what should be our general response is to find a way to blame him but it's far better response for us to be like that old leper over in Leviticus the leper was told if he had the plague his clothes shall be rent now that means he's going to be naked. Naked. And his head bare. Absolutely nothing. Wearing nothing. And he shall put a covering upon his upper lip. And shall cry, unclean, unclean. He was to be naked and bare with the exception of his upper lip. The lip was covered to signify that the lever, leper was to make no excuses about what he was. There he was, exposed in all of his sin. And it was a sign of shameful conviction. He was virtually pointing his finger at himself and saying, it's my fault. I'm unclean. I'm unclean. Those, those, those three verses, these three verses in, in James reveal that this is not our normal response, but it ought to be. Sin lies at the door, at our door, and nowhere else. Let me ask you a question. How or in what manner do we blame God for our inward lust? One way we blame God is by blaming His sovereignty, His providence, His purpose, the state of affairs in the world, the times and the people around us. For the believer to do this is to say that God's ordering the universe in a manner that would cause me to sin. And that's not so. It's not so. The outward occasions and the people our Lord puts in our path are for our good and will ultimately prove to be so, but our rotten hearts react sinfully to it. God's not to be blamed. This world's full of beauty and pleasure. I thought about this a lot. It's full of things of themselves that, that are wonderful. But you know what turns them to evil? Our lust. Our lust. To turn that which is good into a sinful use. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day. John summed it up in his writing, John's Gospel. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, 
It's of the world. And our lust is what makes the world to be the world that is not of God. It's a gift of God, created by God, but we can turn it to a bad thing that's not of God. That's what that verse says. One of the ways most often used in blaming God by His people is His sovereign predestination. Blaming God. What men usually attribute to sovereignty is for the most part turned into fatalism. Man hears that God is in control of all things and then concludes that since God's in control, He shouldn't find fault with a man as He exists. Have you ever heard? Some, have you ever heard someone quote that that, that old song, "Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be." That's not true. It's just not true. Whatever will be is in the purpose of God, and the purpose of God is to save a people, and everything works toward that end. But they say, after all, no one can resist Him. Romans chapter 9. The, the, these, these fatalists say that someday we'll understand how things are when the smoke clears. There ain't no smoke. It's clear as a bell right now. God's purpose is being served. Sovereignty is the character of God. The God who is good and always does what's right. Our lust can, and it, and it does oftentimes, tempt us to blame God for our crookedness, to fix blame upon Him for what we lustfully got ourselves into by His sovereign control. It's not so. God can't be tempted with evil, verse 13. He's immutable. He's good. He's holy. He's without iniquity. And He has no delight in sin. He hates it. He cannot commit sin. It's contrary to His nature. And no one, no one can tempt another one to sin unless He's sinful Himself. Man's evil... And he'll take the very gift of God and through, through, through his lust use it for his own satisfaction and then blame God for it. What we ought to do is cover our upper lip and cry unclean and make no excuses. Let's move on to another question. It's one that comes up often when the subject of sin is addressed, especially as it relates to God using sinful men and their sinful acts to bring things to His appointed end. Is God the author of sin? That's the question. And you know what answers that question better than any other thing in the Scriptures? 
my opinion. It's clearly stated in the Word of God that sinful men and their devices were employed to hang our Savior. Acts. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken. God didn't do it. You have taken. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain Him. Here's another. The wrath of a truth against thy holy child also from Acts here. Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. You know what that includes? Everybody on the face of this earth. Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, that's everybody besides the Jews, and the people of the Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Do those two things contradict one another? No. Here's another. Now is my soul trouble, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this hour came I into this world. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I've both glorified it and I'm going to glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered, and others said that an angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, not because of me, but for your sakes. Now the judgment of this world, now now is the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. The cross... What that, What is that saying? It says that the cross was the purpose of God. It would, it, it would take place. No way to escape it. It was going to happen. It was purpose, predestinated, before this world or universe was ever formed. And there's no possibility that it would not happen. Yet... God didn't nail His Son to a cross. Wicked men acting on their own vicious lust did the evil deed that eventuated in the salvation of God's elect. God didn't make these men act that way. He merely suffered them to be themselves. He didn't restrain them. He didn't restrain their evil nature, though he clearly could have done so. He could have called 10,000 angels if he'd been inclined to. John informed us in his gospel of that. He said, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, said to them, I'm he. They didn't grab him and tie him up then. His answer caused every one of them to fall backwards. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. 
as soon then as he had said to them, I am he, they ask again, whom seek you? Or he asked them again, whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I've told you that I'm he. If therefore you seek me, let these go free. That the saying might be fulfilled. Here's the reason. So that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake of them which thou gavest me, I've lost zero. None. None. God our Father withheld all restraint and they merely followed the dictates of their own lusts. How evil are we? That's that ought to tell you. Unrestrained hate will always act toward the murder of the one that's hated. And to hate is murder. And the only thing that keeps us from acting on our hate is God's sovereign restraint. These little temper fits that we have ought to prove that to us every time we open our mouth in anger. When God's restraint's lifted, we'll act upon the nature that drives our very being. For God to control sinful humanity and carry out His sovereign purpose, He can either restrain from the desired actions that His lust seeks, or he can suffer it to be so. And it must, and they must be left without restraint. That crowd at the crucifixion, we were there in our humanity. We sought to kill the Son of God. We wanted his blood upon our heads. We mocked him and scourged him. And if we think we might have acted otherwise, we don't know what we are. And we have no appreciation for the restraint that keeps us from being what we would be. The cross is not just the best example of God's employment of sinful men. It's the example. And if it's understood, we'll clearly grasp that God's not the author of sin. We'll also understand and perceive what sin is and can attest that God, while suffering it to be so, is not the author of it. Have you ever had to, ever heard or had the question asked, why did God allow sin to exist or even enter the picture? I wish I could appreciate this. Like I desire to. There's a basic weakness in that question. Not necessarily in the asking, but in the presumption that sin is somehow outside the realm of God's purpose. <coughs> Don't misunderstand me here. 
sin is a part of the plan because the cross was and is the plan. If that's so, how then can we be part of the plan and God not be the author of it? I mean, is that not fair to ask? But the answer is right in front of us. Neither, verse 13, tempteth he any man with evil. We're just being what we are. But he often suffers that evil to be acted upon. But the end of it is going to be for the good of his people. They intended for evil. God intended it for good. Remember Joseph when he was thrown in that pit? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. This is the Lord speaking now. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, Christ, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, smite Christ, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. That's the purpose of God, to save a people. There, in that quote, the cross is clearly in view, and God speaks of the revenge of the multitude who crucified Christ by Him removing His restraint and allowing them the hatred to be vented. <laughs> All of it, was for the good of His people. There are several examples of such in the Scripture. <clears throat> and if we weigh them in light of the cross, you'll understand that God is not the author of sin, but sin's a part, sin is a part of His purpose. We all know God's omnipotent, so sin must fall within his sovereign control. Sin's existence is according to his will. If it were not for sin, get this, do you realize that one of our Father's greatest attributes could have never been manifest or made known? How so? There was never anyone to show love to. His love could have never been known had it not been for sin. Providence employs man's sin with God enforcing men to do it. And it's a wonder of His majestic deity. As the psalmist wrote, I have a better understanding of this verse after studying James to this point than I ever have before. When, when David wrote, in the song, he said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise God. The remainder of wrath shall he restrain. How so? Sin exists and is employed by God's foreknowledge and predestination, and sin is because God intended it to be too manifest His love. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, we've taken and by wicked hands have crucified him. God foreknew and deliberately delivered Christ to wicked men to carry out his purpose in the salvation of a people. There was no sin in his act. None. When Isaac laid down on that altar, you reckon that uh, you reckon that his father had to beat him before he put him up there and make him stay there? Uh-uh. Isaac crawled up on that altar under his own, own, own strength. And so did Christ. The outcome was never in question. God's purpose couldn't be frustrated. And he didn't force these men to act according to their cardinal nature. He just simply took his hand off of them. Simply stated, sin serves God just as everything else does. His attributes are exalted by the presence of sin in this world. Could we speak, could we even talk about grace if sin were not existing? Could you talk about redemption without sin being in the world? Could you not talk about God's justice if it were not for sin in the world? Could, could you even talk about righteousness or salvation without the presence of sin? Those words have no meaning, Drew. There would be no basis for it, and we must never blame God for suffering sin to exist because every believer is better for having had sin put away by Christ being made sin for us. Leave you with this thought. What was our Lord's cry from the cross? One of them. I think you'll remember for sure. Under the suffering of the sins of an entire people, a whole kingdom, He cried out that day, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I think that happened literally 40 days later. I think everyone standing at the foot of that cross was saved at Pentecost because he asked for all of them to be saved. I hope that means something to you.